Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. This legacy uh, of, of slavery and lynching and segregation, our history of racial injustice. In interviewing all of these migrant workers, nobody talked about their experiences and the kind of extreme victimizing language that the policy required. As I got to college and I started studying history, I was really interested in sort of figuring out or learning more about Jamaican history and couldn't really figure out how to access Jamaican history. And I had a really growing investment in the lives of women working workers who had left sex work to become jewelry makers. Slavery and its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hello, this is Thomas Thurston, and today we're talking with Wendy Hesford, who is uh, currently our uh, Modern uh, Slavery and Human Trafficking year-long fellow at the Gilder Lehrman Center and is in the Department of English, faculty member at Ohio State University. Wendy's the author of Framing Identities, Autobiography, and the Politics of Pedagogy, and is currently working on a project titled Exceptional Rhetorics Regulating Childhood and Children's Human Rights. Wendy, it's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, can I begin by asking how you became involved in the research that you're currently doing? Well, um, I have a PhD at, from New York University in Rhetoric and Cultural Foundations. And I'd say for about the last two decades or so that I've been teaching and doing research related to representations of uh, human suffering, human rights activism, and uh, human rights violations. And I started my professional career at... Um, that is, after my PhD at o Oberlin College. And the book that you mentioned, Framing Identities, was actually an autoethnography of the ways in which uh, faculty, students, and administrators draw on autobiographical narratives uh, to navigate authority within the academy. So my first project, actually, uh, while not focusing on human suffering and uh, human rights violations, was very much interested in the role of "Quote unquote truth-telling discourses right. and the ways in, and the politics of those discourses, and I also periodically uh, teach in women's studies and international studies at Ohio State University, and teach graduate courses in things like transnational feminisms and seminars on uh, Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement, children and war, and also more recently on modern slavery and human trafficking. And one of the things I tried to do in those courses, which again directly relates to my research, is bring a um, rhetorical framework to bear on these topics that are typically taught from political science or uh, sociology perspectives. Sure. So, I mean, I guess in terms of my research profile, I've always been interested in the, the use of truth-telling discourses um, which are prevalent in human rights representations, right? Testimonies, right. documentary photography, um, and the role they play within particular institutions or in particular contexts. And so your current project, Except Exceptional Rhetorics, why this project and why this time? Well, I probably should go back a little bit to the last book, that I, the last monograph, because Spectacular Rhetorics, uh, Human Rights, Visions, Recognitions, Feminisms, 
in a lot of ways set the tone and uh, research agenda for this I book, see. which in some ways is a continuation, almost a part two hmm. of that book. So let me say a little bit about that project, and then maybe I can talk about exceptional rhetoric. Okay, thanks. Um, so in spectacular rhetorics, um, some of the issues that I was interested in was how international human rights laws, debates, and violations are represented in truth-telling cultural productions. So this included photography, documentary film, news media, uh, theater productions that are based on documentary evidence. And in that book, there are four case study chapters or rhetorical case studies, each of which took on a different um, prominent human rights issue in the late 20th, early 21st century. So one of the chapters is on representations of torture and unlawful detention, namely, as you might remember, the Abu Ghraib scandal around the, the photographs sure. that were taken there, and on the play Guantanamo, which is based on testimonies by detainees and former detainees. So that chapter looks at those, quote unquote, cultural texts and the degree to which they counter or interact with legal formations or understandings of human rights uh, and international uh, law. Another chapter is on ethnic genocide and rape warfare in the former Yugoslavia. And in that chapter, I'm looking at things like um, the documentary film Calling the Ghosts, art installations such as uh, one called uh, Homes and Gardens, which is a photography installation by Melanie Klein. Another chapter looks at the global sex trade. And here's where you can start to see Sure. My, my current yeah. interests. And in that chapter, I looked at several anti-trafficking campaigns along the political spectrum, including uh, the more liberal feminist um, coalition against the trafficking of women and the more, one might say, left-leaning or um, holistic campaign, the Global Alliance Against the Trafficking of Women, which also focuses on labor supply chains and economic uh, migration. Uh, and then the, the last chapter in that book, which is definitely a springboard toward my current project is the one that focuses on child labor and child prostitution and trafficking. And in that chapter, I focus on the Academy Award-winning documentary Born into Brothels, mm. as well as several um, ethnographic case studies in Thailand with um, investigating the role of sex work in families, children, child, children involved in the sex trade in, in families. So the current project, then, Exceptional Rhetorics, Regulating Childhood and Children's Rights, builds on this earlier work, particularly those last two chapters, the one on the global sex trade and uh, child prostitution right. and trafficking. And what I'm doing in, or hope to do in this book is to look at how representations of children's victimization gets caught up in certain logics, cultural and economic logics of capitalism, humanitarianism, and human rights. And uh, how does your uh, Gilder Lehrman Center project, Gendering, Terror, Human Trafficking, and Human Slavery, fit into this, uh, this larger book project? Well, I guess this is also related to the question about why this project, why now? Sure. Uh, which has to do with a couple of things, a couple of factors. One of the main factors um, is the development of international human rights networks and media, uh, including conventions such as the Convention on the Rights of the Child and the just increased focus since like 19, late 1980s, early 1990s on children's human rights, just internationally. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of sets the stage for the, the why now, um, why this project. I'm interested in, given all of these developments in, the, in international law and development of uh, non-governmental organizations that focus on children's rights, what is the nature of children's visibility as human rights subjects? 
So are certain populations of children, for example, hypervisible sure. while others are rendered invisible? Right. So one example that I give sometimes when I'm explaining these distinctions to people not familiar with my work would be to say, OK, why do we ha give so much attention to child soldiers in Africa? Right. Right. Um, in the U.S. and in, in our focus on um, literary works by former child soldiers in our um, in the government's signing and ratification of the optional protocol right. to the uh, CRC, the, the uh, Convention on the Rights of the Child with regard to. Um, recruitment of ch children into armed forces. Why do we focus and support those initiatives where we don't, per se, look at the victimization of black, young black men in this country in the same way? Yeah. Right. So I'm looking at the those those kinds of uh, differentials. Sure. Right. In in our attention as a country, both culturally and legally. Um, so par again, so the, why the project Why Now has to do with the international emphasis on children's rights, sure. but then also the differential focus or interest that um, the U.S. government and U.S. Uh, organizations and the state uh, pays or doesn't pay to them. So how does the GLC book fit into all this? Well, one of the chapters that uh, in Exceptional Rhetorics is focusing on the gendering of terror, human trafficking, and human security. And... Um, I'm really building off of the work of um, a transnational feminist scholar called uh, Pardis Madavi and her work in trafficking, it's called From Trafficking to Terror, Constructing a Global Social Problem. And one of the things she does in that book is look at the, the fusion between the discourses and laws on the U.S. war on terror and U.S. wars on trafficking. Right. That's how she, she frames it. And her interest in interest is in how that fusion has generated negative stereotypes about uh, Muslim populations, um, has uh, been reductive in its understanding of the complexity of both problems, that is, the wars sure, on terror right. and, the, and the war on trafficking. And so where I come in is, in a way, in response to her call. One of the th things she calls for in her research is increased emphasis on the narratives of victims and survivors themselves, that is, of trafficking and of terrorism. And she ends her book with that kind of call. Uh -huh. But what she doesn't do is say, okay, that is important. I entirely am in alignment with the focus on the experiential and the, the quote-unquote truth-telling right. discourses and their roles uh, legally and culturally. But what she doesn't do, which I hope to do in my chapter, is say, how are those narratives produced? Who produces those truth-telling narratives? Sure. Who mobilizes them and for what purposes? Exactly. So uh, could you say a little about, uh, about the Yazidis and, the, and uh, how they fit into – I think, in fact, uh, they seem to be the perfect example in some way of this convergence of, uh, of uh, a narrative about human trafficking and a narrative about uh, terror and the war on terror. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's why I'm, you know, I'm so fascinated by the representations of the Yazidi crisis, in, namely in U.S. media, but perhaps also um, Euro-American media mm -hmm. a little bit more broadly. And that is because the, the ways in which the Yazidi survivors' narratives um, are mobilized demonstrate that they're caught between debates about women's victimization and agency and between women's human rights and security. And again, as you said, they, they do exist at, at the kind of intersection of these discourses of the war on terror and the war on um, 
trafficking. So before maybe I talk more about how those um, media representations function or what their characteristics are, I'll respond to the to your question about just saying a little bit more about the sure. Yazidis themselves. So the Yazidis are an ethno-religious minority in northern Iraq and the second largest non-Muslim uh, community in Iraq and community prior to its dislocation had approximately about 500,000 to 600,000 members living in northern Iraq. They're neither Muslim nor Christian. And according to um, a recent UN report, ISIS has committed terrible atrocities, not only against the Yazidi, but against other ethno-religious communities, uh, including Iraqi uh, Christians, Shiite Muslims, and fellow Sunni Muslims. So one of the reasons why ISIS... uh, uh, or how it explains its uh, focus on the Yazidi and targeting of the Yazidi minority is because they view them as infidels, as polytheists who have an oral tradition rather than a written response. And they even go as far to categorize the Yazidi, that is, the Islamic State does, uh-huh. as devil worshipers. Um, and you might remember during the August 2014 attack on the Sinjar Mountain in northern Iraq, that ISIS abducted um, hundreds of Yazidi women and girls and took many of them into Syria to be sold in market as sex slaves. Yes, right. So, I mean, there's approximately, I think, an estimate over 350,000 Yazidi who are now currently displaced, many in refugee camps, some in Germany and and many also in northern Iraq, and approximately 300, um, I think it might be a little lower than 300, um, excuse me, and... um, 3,500 women, girls, and some men who remain in ISIS um, captivity. Uh, The women and girls, as you may know, are subject to enslavement, trafficking, um, and sexual violence. Right. So so this is kind of the the kind of facts of it. How, how, uh, getting back to your kind of project, how is this represented in say, the conservative uh, press? How, how do they take this story and tell it? So um, in my preliminary analysis of the um, U.S. Christian coverage, for example, of the Yazidi crisis and coverage in um, all what we might say as alt-right media, um, what I'm finding is that this media tend to draw on the political fundamentalist rhetoric that's associated with the uh, former George W. Bush administration. Mm. And and the rhetoric that influenced um, the Bush administration, terrorism and trafficking policies. Right. Um, so, for example, conservative reporting on the war on terror more broadly and its representations of Yazidi specifically tend to map the the freedom slavery binary onto other dualism, such as the uh, Christianity is depicted as evil. Uh, uh, excuse me, as civil and modern, whereas uh, the implication many of these accounts is that um, Islam is uncivil and anti-modern. Right. So we see these kind of fundamental dualisms surfacing in representations of the Yazidi. Another pattern that, that occurs, which is fascinating to me and I want to explore further, is the erasure of Yazidi particularities, that is the particularity of their eth- ethnic and religious background and right. identities in ways that advance arguments uh, about the need for counterterrorism efforts that focus on the persecution of Christians worldwide. So what happens is in the conservative, uh, in some conservative media, is that the Yazidi are no longer uh, represented as their own kind of um, 
ethnic religious community who was subject to um, genocide yeah. um, uh, as of you know March 2016 in terms of the declaration by um, the UN and the US. Um, and their experience then somewhat, not entirely, gets erased in order to advance an, argue, an argument about the need to focus on the persecution of Christians worldwide. And conservative media is very critical of the Obama administration, for example, for not um, declaring the violence against the Yazidi and Christians right. uh, in the region as genocide, you know, f- until 2016, even though like the initial attack in Sinjar was in August, I believe, uh-huh. of 2014. So, um, so on the one hand, you see this erasure, right, with the, with the uh, intent of focusing on uh, Christian persecution worldwide. And on the other hand, you also see a lot of attention in conservative and also mainstream media, I would say, mm-hmm. on um, the sexual violation of women and, and very sensationalized accounts of that violation. So many articles, even in the liberal, in the mainstream or what might be called liberal press, focus on women's stories of sexual violation. Um, and they start off with very kind of sensationalist headlines and uh-huh. details about rape, uh, sexual violence, and rationales for um, such such acts. So for me, the problem with, with these representations, on the one hand, is the erasure of the particularities of the Yazidi uh, ethnic and religious identities. And on the other hand, is the tendency to sensationalize sexual violence and even eroticize it in some cases. Sure. And... Um, in some representations, including, I would say, liberal feminist representations, um, women's victimization becomes universalized and male domination becomes the counter there. So th- these are just some of the templates, what we might call the discursive or rhetorical templates that the Yazidis survivors' stories fall into or are served to or are made to serve. Right. right? The agendas that they're, sure. that they're made, made to serve. Um, one example that I that I think I gave in my talk, uh-huh. um, which might be helpful just to mention here, uh, in terms of the feminist, uh, liberal feminist deployment of Yazidi women's survivors' testimonies, is the example of uh, Nadia Murad, who is a Yazidi survivor activist, right, who is now um, given testimony before the UN, before uh-huh. the, the U.S. Congress, the UN Security Council, et cetera, and is working with celebrity... Um, lawyer uh, Clooney, Amal Clooney, to try to draw international attention to um, the Yazidi crisis and to hold ISIS accountable under international law uh, for crimes against humanity, right? And, and so she is someone who has a kind of global platform now. Right. And what is happening in some of the representations of her testimony or it's the embedding of her testimony in other sites, is that she is depicted as this exceptional character, right? This exceptional woman who is resilient, who is brave, who is courageous, um, and who we in the quote-unquote West should identify with. Right. right. Now, that's not to say she isn't all those things. Yeah. She is. She's resilient. She's brave. Sure. She's courageous. But what happens in the embedding of her story that way is we, we tend to focus on the kind of individual trauma, Right. And not look at more holistic uh, responses to the problem and do not look at global culpabilities. Hmm. And what is going on in uh, our own, that is, the U.S. counterterrorism policies or neoliberal economic policies that might actually uh, embolden ISIS? Right. Not to mention our own media that might embolden 
emboldened ISIS? And how and how are these global culpabilities also um, important to understand with regard to the ways in which you see the testimonies are are being used? So in other words, it's it's not okay, I would say, to just individualize and and turn someone like Nadia Murad into this global iconic figure who sure. then serves our own need um, to not assess our own role as a country right? Uh, and our culpability in, in the larger problems, meaning of the wars on terror and the wars on trafficking. Right. It's the kind of a liberal version of the conservative uh, uh, narrative to have the Yazidi stand in for the oppression of Christians. It's exactly. just doing the work, uh, 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 someone else's agenda, but not necessarily, and I guess this is what I want to ask, addressing uh some of the fundamental issues, and I guess from there I might ask, so what, uh, what are some of the cultural arguments uh, uh, in the representation of the crisis and, and you know, how, how are they working to, uh, to the detriment of, of, of uh, uh, a, I don't want to say true, <laughs> because that's always a loaded word. Right. Uh, but, you know, what should we be doing? What's at stake? Well, um, there's a lot at stake. Um, my focus of my research has to do with discourse and rhetorical framings, right, of, of how we understand certain events. So my research is less about offering uh, solutions in terms of this is what we need to do in order to minimize the war on trafficking or war on terror. What I'm interested in is how we frame these these problems and how those frames represent certain political alliances or agendas and that we need to draw attention and expose those agendas and those alliances in order to really understand our own culpabilities. So with regard to, um, I think actually you put it well when when you paralleled the conservative and the liberal mobilizations, right, where you said the, um, they're both universalizing tendencies. Yeah. One is a universalizing of, of Christian persecution worldwide, and the other is a universalization of sexual vi- uh, violation against women. And of course, in both cases, you're erasing particularities sure. and, and circumstances of context. The cultural arguments are really interesting to me, and I, again, I've just started to explore these, because um, what we see is in contrast to the arguments where one might say that um, there's a cultural pathology argument at work, right, which is saying that um, Muslim men are mm. hypermasculine or are, are repressed and therefore they turn to the Yazidi for um, sexual gratification, which they might otherwise not uh, be entitled to right. or be able to claim, I mean, arguments like this all kind of fall into the kind of cultural pathology argument, which right. are highly problematic and, of course, go way back in terms of Orientalist discourse about the Middle East and the quote-unquote Muslim world, Yeah. right? So the cultural pathology arguments have been exposed, I think, by, by transnational feminists and post-colonial scholars. But what we're seeing in the Yazidi coverage, in addition to those old Orientalist discourses, is a turn within Yazidi activism and religious um, spiritual leaders in the Yazidi community is a turn, an explicit turn away from cultural pathology arguments, a questioning of the imposition of those arguments, and a reclaiming of a kind of cultural authority based um, on a rewriting of religious doctrine. So, for example... Um, some of the spiritual leaders in the Yazidi community have 
called for a shift in religious doctrine in order for the women who have been abused and have now survived and are trying to return to their families and communities, a change in religious doctrine which would say these women are quote-unquote pure, right, and should uh-huh. be accepted back into the community. So that suggests that, that the Yazidi culture, like all cultures, is not static. Right. Right. It's right. always shifting and it's always changing. Yeah. And, and this is not, you know, a, a new development in any, way, in, in any way, but it's new in the sense that it's coming into mainstream international discourse, right, which then throws into relief all of these other narratives which impose the kind of cultural pathology right. or, you know, Muslim um, terrorist, you know, Muslim men are all terrorist kinds of uh-huh. um, kinds of construction. So these, I would say, are, are kind of cultural arguments that are working against both the cultural pathology arguments and cultural shaming. But a footnote there, right, would be, isn't there still, or a question might be, a kind of uh-huh. patriarchal or heteropatriarchal um, power at work here in reclaiming that kind of quote-unquote purity for the Yazidi woman, uh-huh. right? That the, the male religious leaders, the patriarchs in the community are saying, okay, you can come back. We now will rebaptize you and, you know, so that you are pure and could become part of the community again. So there's, there's, right. there's a kind of um, reification of power there at the same time that it's a revision of religious doctrine or cultural doctrine. But, it, you know, but it is fascinating that by studying uh, the city as a particular uh, group that are responding to changes in contemporary living, uh, that they're using their cultural tool bag to kind of yeah. decide how they then shift and respond, as you say, any any group of people would do in, uh, in similar circumstances. And uh, and of course, it does make it a far more complicated uh, story than one that, say, uh, a kind of uh, a global uh, feminist reading or uh, or a, a kind of uh, Christian vic- victimization reading uh, tend to give. And it's by looking at the at the culture itself and how it's responding, rather than trying to place this, I guess, narrative uh, uh, from one end or the other onto it. And, uh, so, so how I mean, so how are things? So how do we proceed from here? Is it just kind of getting to that point, or? Um, I mean, one. I think we. It depends on who the we is. Okay. Right. I mean, we. Uh, if we is, or you know, if we refers to teachers and scholars, right? And it's teachers of scholars of modern slavery and human trafficking, and teachers and scholars interested in the discursive fusion of the war on terror and the war on trafficking, then, you know, one of the things we need to do is is to map out, I would say, you know, um, what these different narratives are and the different templates in which they fall, right? So it's not about... It's not about looking for the authentic Yazidi story or anybody's story that has been uh, a victim of human rights violations and crimes against humanity. It's not about authenticating that story so much or looking for the authentic story. It's about looking at how both the survivors as well as those who receive them, whatever the context is, um, deploy certain narratives for particular purposes. Because let's face it, survivors themselves are also creating these narratives. Right. Right. And they are... Uh, putting together narratives in ways in which they think will be most receptive, right? Or to align with certain expectations, right? right? So they also need to tell certain stories in certain contexts. So it's really about, you know, looking at 
the um, rhetorical expectations and conventions that frame any expression of victimization or survival, right? And, and looking at um, the ways in which one story versus another might yield a different policy response, you know, a different uh, form of representation, a different embedding of that story. So it's my work really is, is mostly about exposing, right, and trying to map those narratives. Right. And this seems and, and I can see how how this approach uh, would be very useful in just kind of understanding the uh, the whole uh, anti-trafficking industry itself and how uh, through a variety of different uh, uh, strategies uh, engages uh, risks uh, engaging in similar types of narratives a way that uh, that that well even the term modern slavery has been Im- deployed to uh, to kind of create certain assumptions about what's happening now I mean you're, yeah. You're, yeah. by by this specific story is really a, a good kind of model for how to think about how we approach uh, international humanitarian efforts in in general. Yeah, I think so. And and also, you know, we see some of the common narratives, commonplace narratives that we see in anti-trafficking campaigns in the Yazidi case as well, which is, you know, the most common perhaps is the rescue narrative, hmm. right? Um, and it's it's often the humanitarian rescue narrative. And again, not to say that rescue is not important in certain cases or that a humanitarian focus is not important right. or that a focus on... Um, the persecution of Christians worldwide is not important. It is. Yeah. The question is, you know, um, on what account are these impor- these stories important? On whose account? Who's cre- producing the story? Who's um, facilitating its um, production? That is, who's eliciting it, right? What are the contexts in which it is elicited? Yeah. Um, and then what are the responses? And there, there are clear connections between discursive frameworks and law. There's no doubt about it. You right. can see, you know, some of the attention in anti-trafficking law of late, for example, to victimization, which is not a bad thing, right? That it's it's focusing less and less, I would say, on the criminalization of the trafficking victim and more framing of the trafficking, the person who is a victim of trafficking in, right. as a victim, right, that yeah. is in terms of their needs, right? Their needs of... Uh, recovery, social services, psychological services, reintegration into a community, et cetera. Again, not to say that even in that shift there may not be problems, mm-hmm. as, as scholars have drawn attention to. But these shifts, we see these shifts in law, and we, sh- we see these shifts in, in the cultural narratives. And they're, they're very much um, intersecting, I would say, and mutually um, defining. Uh-huh. Um- before we leave, could you uh, uh, recommend some uh, resources that for people that are interested in finding out more about some of the issues that you've been grappling with? So I, I was thinking probably I, w- I would refer back to the text by Madavi that I referred to, which right. is titled From Trafficking to Terror, Constructing a Global Social Problem, just because she sets the framework for understanding the, the discursive fusion of the wars on trafficking and terror and how those impact U.S. policy. Um, but some of the other works that focus explicitly on discourse and narrative would be uh, Julieta Hua's Trafficking Women's Human Rights, Yvonne Zimmerman's Other Dreams of Freedom, Religion, Sex, and Human Trafficking, and, and one that's not so much on narrative but is important because it brings into to the foreground the economic 
policies that uh, often embolden not so much terrorism, but trafficking. Mm-hmm. And that would be Jennifer Suklin's book, Economies of Violence, Transnational Feminism, Post-Socialism, and the Politics of Sex Trafficking. Well, Wendy, thanks so much. We'll have those resources on our webpage. And uh, again, I want to uh, thank you for uh, speaking with us and being here in New Haven uh, for the year. It's been wonderful. I just want to thank you especially for the work you've uh, done uh, with uh, coming to a classroom and uh, speaking with students who are interested in these topics and uh, the work you've done uh, teaching your course here at Yale. And again, a pleasure having you. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, Tom. Slavery and its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.